Greetings. Welcome to the Asna Kitchen podcast. So I'm coming to you on location in India, in Ashtanga Yoga School of Kovalam. And uh, just wanted to remind you that my new revised and expanded version of Maps and Musings is available on Amazon.com, and you can get the physical print copy or the Kindle edition. So the topic for this month is this finding balance between your kind of spiritual life and, and your material life. In the Yoga Sutras, the, the whole premise of yoga is put forth, and it, it kind of postulates this uh, your material nature as one aspect, one, uh, one of the principal aspects of reality versus the, your spiritual essence as a seer. According to yoga, we're all like suffering beings. We go through the, through the world suffering because of a san yoga, it's called, where we've mixed up the spirit and matter. We don't, you can't distinguish the difference. And so the process of yoga is to end the san yoga, to end the mix-up. And in one sense, you could say that the, the idea of san yoga is a matter of balance. It's a matter of perspective and proportion. The most common imbalance is to be over-identified with your material self and not identified with your spiritual self. You even get attracted to yoga, to a sadhana, to a, a discipline that reminds you of your spiritual dimension because you're, you've, the imbalance has become so acute. You become so worldly, so identified with your body and your, your, all the aspects of your personality and all the concerns that you have in the material world that it just becomes unbearable. That can be a conscious process or also an unconscious process where you're just driven that way and you don't even know why. And, and you might even think that you're kind of happy in your material world. But somewhere in there, there's a kind of hunger or a, a desire for something else, some, some other dimension to enter into your life. So, the, so that's what I'm kind of asking you to orient on, is to think about the juxtaposition of the human being. On the one hand, we're not pure spiritual beings. Like, and that's how the, 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 it's called, it's called the purusha, which means pure consciousness. And so it's, and it's, and when you've kind of separated them, then you actually think of them as distinct. It's like, and it's this, and in fact, that's part of what yoga is saying, that they really are separate. But the whole thing, though, is you come down into life. You are born. You're, you have a physical, material aspect to you, right? You've got this body and, and things. And so, and so they are intertwined. So that's something to really get in touch with and go, wow, yes. And then, to, and then also to think of your yoga practice, the daily time on your mat, as this time to get in touch with this other dimension that is, by, by very definition, it's, it's invisible. It's not sensible. It is, it is immaterial. 
sometimes. So it's, you can't see it. You can't apprehend it with your senses. So it makes sense that your, the material aspect of you would dominate, right? And, and that the spiritual aspect would be underrepresented. Okay, and it's interesting, the, um, the Indian stories really highlight this. And for me, they, they make it a little more playful and kind of help you to interface with it on a, with deep yoga themes on a deeper level or a more creative level, a uh, more playful level. And this, um, what I'm talking about is this kind of uh, finding a balance between the material and the spiritual dimension of yourself is depicted in the stories as, a, uh, as this ongoing battle between the gods on one hand and the anti-gods. So the gods and the demons are constantly at war with each other, battling for supremacy in the universe. And no one ever finally wins. Like sometimes the gods gain ascendancy, and then the demons do all kinds of things to gain power, and they start defeating the gods. And then the gods will have to do something to get the power back. And, and one of the, the main ways, one really big way that the gods get power back is um, Vishnu, who's he's the sustainer god. So there's Brahma's the, the god of creation, Vishnu's the sustaining god, and Shiva's the destroyer. And so you've got this cycle that things go through of creation, sustaining, destroying. And everything material is subject to that cycle. And, and we have those cycles within ourselves. We have within our kind of psyches and within our bodies. And we have kind of larger life cycles and smaller, more daily cycles. When things get really out of balance, when the demon forces get, gain ascendancy, then Vishnu, the sustainer, intervenes. He, there, and he has 10 avatars. Okay, so 10 of these, he sends um, an aspect of himself down to earth, down into material reality to, to get the balance back and to represent the spiritual path. One of his incarnations is as a Vamana, the dwarf. And, it, and in that story, um, there's a demon whose name is Bali, and he gains power um, through tapas, through ascetic practices, and through um, even doing things like um, good things, like charitable works, and um, kind of being very devoted to tapas and to withdrawing and emptying out. But he's also a demonic force. And as he gains power, he gets a little bit inflated and he wants more power. And so he gets his eyes on heaven. And that's when um, Indra, the god, he, he enlists the help of Vishnu to come and, and save the day. And so um, Vishnu incarnates as a, this Brahmin dwarf. And he goes to Bali. Goes, and Bali is so generous. He's a, he's a great king at this point. He has so much power. And he's known for not being able to refuse when somebody asks him for something. Like, he's that generous and that charitable. 
And so Vishnu knows this, and he's going to take advantage of it. So, and he incarnates as a dwarf as part of the conceit. Well, he greets him and asks him, what can I do for you? And, and so Vamana, the dwarf, he says, sir, all I need is three steps of land um, to make my little hut so I can do my meditation and do my ascetic practice. And so Bali's like, sure, you can three steps, that's, that's no problem at all. But Bali, he has this um, spiritual advisor, his name is Sukracharya, who, who's, he's like, it's pretty obvious that something's going on here. Like, because this dwarf, he's radiant, he's like a beautiful being, and he's obviously exuding all this power. And so Sukracharya, he sees that he even has this foresight, this intuition, that's Vishnu, and he's trying to unseat Bali. And he try, so this, his advisor, Bali's advisor is like, sir, don't do this. You, this is going to be your ruin. And so Bali even has a hint that this is going to happen, what's, gonna, what's to come, but he goes forward anyway. In one um, scene of it, it's quite amazing, is they have to consecrate the, this request and make it formal, like that Bali's going to grant this wish. And so they have to pour water from a from a vessel. And Sukracharya, he so doesn't want Bali to do this that he hides in that vessel. He makes himself small and he hides in there trying to block the flow of water. But Vishnu, he, see, he knows what's going on and so he sticks a blade of grass down that water spout and it pokes the eye of Sukracharya and, and spoils that eye. And then so from then on, he's only got one eye. And it doesn't work either. So, so they consecrate that ceremony. And then, so the very first thing Vishnu does is he takes the first step. And, and he, when he does it, he grows to colossal dimension. And his step takes the entire material world. One, in one step, that's how much land he, he takes. OK, then his second step, he takes the rest, all of the heavens and everything beyond. And so in two steps, he took everything in existence back. And then he's like, well, what should I do with my third step? He asks that to Bali. And Bali is in awe of what's happening. And he's humbled. And he actually gets on board with it. And he bows his head. And he tells Vishnu to, to press his head down into the underworld. And, so, and that's what happens. And Bali um, becomes the ruler of the underworld uh, on behalf of Vishnu. So he joins forces with him, but he finds his kind of proper station. And so then the balance to the universe is restored. So it's an interesting um, contemplation to, to think about the myths and to come at them from a, a kind of psychic place, like, that these are all parts of our psyches that are at play and at battle and the subjects of these stories. And so you could say that Vishnu, as the Vamana, the dwarf, he's representing Purusha. He's representing that aspect of you that's devoted to spiritual um, things. And Bali, on the other hand, is this material aspect of you. Let's think about it. What does it actually mean to be devoted to a spiritual life? And to me, it has two prongs, two very important aspects. Okay, and one is that there's the, the universe itself. So the whole universe is operating under 
a kind of spiritual premise that, that's hidden that's, and that's different than the material premise. And, the, and so one of the premises is, is that everything is interconnected. And so the, the self is imagined as a cosmic being. So this Purusha is, is known as the cosmic being or the cosmic person. Purusha actually means person. And, and so it's said that the entirety of the existence fits within the body of one cosmic being. So everything, there's nothing that can get outside of it. So all the trees, all the mountains, all the worlds, all the solar systems and parallel galaxies, everything is happening inside an organism, which makes everything interrelated and connected, part of a single system. Okay, and that is you. And, and that is the perspective that you take when you come to a spiritual view, which is, which is opposed to the material view, which is that I'm just this ego, this particular body, and so the boundaries of me stop with my skin. And then everything else out there is different than me, other than me, and potentially even against me. From the spiritual perspective, I'm not just this little body. Who I am is, is interconnected with everything. And so that perspective gives, totally changes how I'm viewing the world. Like when the suffering of others is not something different than me. It's, it's part of me, and I'm responsible for it, or I'm attuned to it. And so I'm, I'm concerned with the well-being of all and the, the kind of harmony and un unitedness of the entirety. When you come to that perspective, then, you, then th the spiritual laws come into focus, like ahimsa, which is the, the first yama, or the first ethical principle, which is non-harming, non-aggression. You take your flight and fight, uh, fight or flight mechanism, your, your impulsive response to lash out in revenge or to protect yourself or to run away, you, you check that because you've got this universal thing. So if you lash out at something else in, in, out there in the world, you're actually lashing out at yourself. Okay, and so, so you embrace this ahimsa as, as part of your spiritual training. Okay, so you, you look at your anger. You look at your, um, and you look for forgiveness and mercy and kindness. And then there's another spiritual law that you live by, which is karma. It means cause and effect. So that in a spiritual sense, Every action that you take has a, a consequence because everything is interconnected. And so nothing happens in isolation. Every action has its fruit. And the fruit of the action has to come. There's no avoiding it. And karma so it's tied up with justice. It means that the universe is just in that the, action, the result of action fits the action. So there's cosmic justice. What you do, how you act, how you think, how you respond matters, which is different than a worldly point of view. So if you have a worldly point of view, then the only justice that you really are interested in is kind of human justice, where 
the laws and the courts and things like that are, they, they decide what is justice, right? So there's not a hidden dimension to justice where every action has its result. So in the Hindu pantheon, there's the god of death. His name is Yama. And he's, his name is Dharma Raj, which means he's the king of justice. And so when you die, you, you go before uh, Dharma Raj, and he has a scribe whose name is Chitragupta, which means rich in secrets, and rich in secrets. So he's got this ledger, this tally of every action you've ever performed. And so and Yama looks at it, and he kind of assesses your behavior. Like, your, your, your skill in action, your, your lovingness, your forgivingness, your acting generously. And then that determines what happens to you or what, what comes next to you for you after death. And, and there's three ways you can go. Okay, so one is if you perform many evil actions, then many undharmic actions, so that are not just in a cosmic sense, then you spend time in one of the 21 hells, kind of atoning and making right. And, and then the, the second um, thing that could happen to you is you do some good actions and some harmful, impure actions, a mix. Okay? And if that happens, then you incarnate again. You, become, you, you merge, you come back into the cycle of materiality and Get to work on purifying your karma. Okay, and then the last is that you've done, you've been, become like a saint. You've, all your actions have been so pure that you don't return, as it were. You're just kind of in this pure consciousness, kind of merge with that. So that's some ideas about what is this spiritual. Um, identity that we're trying to come to. And that's, that's some ideas about the one branch of it. Okay, and the, and the other branch of it is the, what I call the calling, or the mission, or the dharma. And so that in being born, you have, you're, you're, you have a special mission, or a calling. And it's something you're born with. And James Hillman calls it the innate image of self. Okay, and so, so it's something you're, that, you come out of the womb with, and then you are working to kind of understand that dharma or, and manifest it, that that's what your life is about, is to fulfill your dharma or do your calling. And that calling is a, a sacred work. So it's a sacred seeing, and it's not of your ego, meaning that you don't choose it, this work that it's given to you. And in fact, you are also given forgetting of it, or forgetting of how to manifest it. It's a, it's a work that is kind of, from your material perspective, you'll feel that it is being thrust upon you, that you have to do this duty that you don't necessarily want to do. And it, so it's, it's at odds with your uh, ego and, and with your material self. It's this sacred seeing, this kind of, original seeing that you are trying to get in touch with and, and manifest in the physical world.
So it's like a, a spiritual dimension, a sacred work that exists in an image in your head, and that your job is, your life is a kind of work to figure that out, to give it shape, to identify it, and then manifest it in the world. Okay, and that's what you're doing when you practice, is you're representing this whole spiritual aspect, and you're making room for that in your life. So Vishnu is kind of symbolizing the, the ascending of that, the ascendancy of that, or the, the, the part of you that intervenes on your worldly concerns and says no. Your dharma, your sacred work is important, and karma is important, and nonviolence are important, and seeing the interconnectedness of things is what is important. And, and that somehow you haven't given enough attention to that. So what we're talking about is this, this balance. It's like, how do I exist in the material world and satisfy the material qualities? of like sustaining my body. And, and, and we're taught, so our whole education from, from kindergarten all the way through to graduate school, it's all bent towards giving you a place, a status, a power, a position, a role in this material world. And even the training of family is a kind of material training that you are undergoing. And so, your kind of material identity is very well established. Um, or very, uh, there's a lot of encouragement and reinforcement for that aspect of you. So Bali, he's this very um, contradictory figure because he's a demonic force. He's, a, he's representing a, an imbalance between the gods and the anti-gods. And so, so the whole story is about taking away his power and restoring balance. And yet, there he is. He's, he, he's so charitable, he can't refuse when someone asks something. And, and like he, there's a certain day, day of the year where Bali comes back from the underworld and, and is worshipped. And um, some parts of the world, like Kerala, where we are, they worship Bali because he's got so many amazing qualities. And, for me, this is, this is a really important part of when you begin to think spiritually and, and value having a spiritual identity. It, because what, what you want is a balance. The, the, the material self that you are is not just something all negative. It's not all uh, something to be left behind so that you can become a pure spiritual being. So what you've got then is on both sides of the equation, you've got the potential for a shadow element, okay, or, or an over-identification element, okay? So to be over-identified with your material nature is more obvious, right? If when we're kind of steeped in um, negative habits, addicted to outer desires, food or um, drugs or alcohol or um, material things, right? We get so um, caught up in pursuing those things or uh, very over invested in our work and having power and status and earning power. 
So there's so many ways to become over-identified with your material uh, identity. And so yoga has this kind of tapas answer, this emptying out, this uh, rejecting aspect. Because uh, yama means restraint, it means pulling back. And vairagya means non-attachment. So yoga kind of brings in this whole opposite perspective to those things. It, it tells you that not to follow your desires, not to become too attached, and not to become too worldly, and, and, and to actually, and it's easy to become very negative towards worldliness. And so it is possible to even have, create a shadow and become overly identified with your spiritual aspect to the point where you kind of squash the life out of yourself. And you can become, you're, become very dry and um, superior and judgmental and um, just ungenerous about life. Okay, and so you're trying to strike this balance and to find the best of both worlds, the, the model of these material dimension, spiritual dimension, you're supposed to become skillful in using that and thinking about yourself in those terms and then learning to have the presence of mind, have the, the mind power and the siddhi or the, the force within yourself to use material skillfully and soulfully. And because, so the work that you do in the world um, is, especially when it's dharmic, when it's tied to your calling, when it's um, sacred work, when it's transcending your ego and that it's serving the entirety, that is some of the most important thing that you will do. And it, it has a very material um, aspect to it. It's, it's you. It's this person with this body and these thoughts and um, this perspective out in the world manifesting. Okay? And then you also, life is nothing without relationships. Okay? Without some deep connections to others and other people, other beings, places. Right? And, and so you learn to cherish those and nurture the worthy ones. Okay? And then, even to a certain degree, it's almost impossible to steal away. Like, even if you try to, uh, if you think that enjoying materiality, enjoying food, enjoying drink, enjoying um, sex, and enjoying what this material world offers, if you think, if you get a perspective that that is all bad or wrong or leading to suffering, and you, you can try very hard to not enjoy, and, and, and you will have to try very hard. So in, in India, of course, they've explored it very deeply, and they have a type of ascetic that's called a paramahamsa, means a, it's a, Deep renunciant to the point where you try not to have any pleasure at all. A total renunciant. He has no family, no home, no worldly possessions. And so his mind is constantly trained in the spiritual realm. 
and to the point where, so he'll beg for food. But then, of course, that food, it can be tasty, right? So they'll throw sand in the food to try to make it not tasty. They'll walk with their eyes cast down so they don't have to look up and see how beautiful the sky is. The radical pursuit of the spiritual path. And it's not to say that that is inherently negative, but, it, but you want perspective and balance. And, and it's almost like you have to earn that kind of tapas because of this psychological um, trait that's called an, or a psychological reality. So it's something that the mind does. It's called an anentiodromia, which means, literally means running to the opposite. Okay, and so it, it means that if you get really involved in tapas, suppose you, you deny yourself well, you don't indulge your appetites, well, and, and, and yet somehow you have not really resolved that, that there's a place in you that really wants those things and is deeply, still deeply attached and invested in them, then what, what happens is when you withdraw from them, it's like the, it can get to a point where it instantly turns into the opposite. So, so deep fasting can turn into gorging, right? Or withholding anger. So you, you resolve to not get mad. And meanwhile, anger starts bubbling up with, within you. And then and, and, and you either start lashing out at people without even knowing or being able to help it, or you go into passive-aggressive type um, modality. Okay, so you have to really chart and uh, observe these two aspects of you and respect. So to me, there's a, there's a respect that comes. You respect your material nature, and you respect your uh, spiritual nature. And the, the story, it's coming from the, the, a typical scenario, right? Which is that we forget. We, be, we just get lost in the world. We lose our spiritual practice, and um, we forget about emptying out. We forget about kind of these really deep parts of ourself, about self-knowledge and reserving time in our life to, to come to know who this person is. What is this? What am I doing here as a spiritual being? And then devoting energy to that. And so, so the story is just, it's like a, a call to practice. So taking those steps is like getting on the mat every day. And just by getting on the mat, it's like you're reclaiming the territory of your body, of your psyche, and you're reprioritizing. You're remembering what this deep part of me needs representation, needs time and expression and devotion. Okay, and then the fact that Bali, though, is not, he doesn't fight Vishnu, right? He, 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 he tells Vishnu, he bows his head and tells him to push. That's what to, do, what to do with that third step. And so when you strike this balance, then you, your two natures get into agreement with each other. Right? That, so, you, so you can enjoy the being a material being in proportion to this core, this very deep 
central theme that's real, the real subject of your life, or the deepest subject of your life, uh, your dharma. So I'm just inviting you to contemplate those things and, and really work on refining your ability to discern using those perspectives and to get the most out of your material um, self, the material you've been given, and, and then also using that material well to realize this spiritual essence that you are and manifest that and take part in the spiritual dimension of existence and share with the world. And because we all, we need that representation of that spiritual dimension, right? So the, that's part of this battle between the gods and the demons. You got to keep restoring the balance within ourselves and within the greater world. So thank you for joining me. Uh, just wanted to remind you that this summer, August 11th through the 17th, Doing, I'm hoping it's the first annual uh, retreat in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's an amazing place. And um, so come visit and study. Um, you can get information about it on my website, and um, you can register there, too.